instrument which, when it comes to it, is hardly a surprise. But it's still a disappointment. Maybe not to all of us uh, here, but it certainly means for many holidays and weddings are put on hold again. It means singing and all the other things that we miss uh, in church uh, remain out. It's a setback just when we thought we had reached the beginning of the end. And we did feel that, didn't we, just a few weeks ago. Yeah, there was one phrase from the Prime Minister this week, uh, I think it was on Tuesday, uh, that was the headline in the Times as it summarised his speech the next day. And I want to pick up on it as my way in today. It was this, we have to learn to live with the virus. That's what the headline said. That's what Boris Johnson said. We have to learn to live with the virus. And politically, I think it was designed to prepare us for the reality that reopening actually may still happen in four weeks' time uh, because the economy really needs it. But it will come with risks and with costs. And that might be what he means. We have to learn to live with the virus. But spiritually, I want to use it also as a rallying call and as a, a guiding principle as we think about how we respond to where we are at right now. It looks like this is a third wave. It looks like it won't be quite as deep and as serious and in particular, thank goodness, probably not with the hospitalizations and deaths that previous waves have had. And yet, of course, it's weighing on everyone's mind and we recognize that. So today, as we think about learning to live with the virus and what that means for us as a church in what is my last sermon of this sermon series, uh, when we next meet, or when I next preach, rather, it will be uh, just after, as we have that healing service on the 11th of July. And it's about learning, yes, to be careful and sensible, as we have been for so many months now, but also learning to make the best of what we have taking the opportunities and seizing the moment. And those opportunities are far greater than they were just two months ago. So that's where we're heading. And using this passage, that in a, in a sense parallels the choices and the tensions of this current moment in time. For we've got joy alongside grief and sadness, just as we have as a country. We've got a call for courage into the context of fear. And we've got potential reward of mission and ministry, yet with risk. So let's pray that God speaks into that tension and this situation now. Father God, please do speak to us through this passage, in this moment, through my words, both here in church and for those listening now and later. And Father, would you prepare us for this next, we pray, brief season of a third wave perhaps, but also with the imminent prospect of far greater opportunities. Not least to share your love and your light with a community that is fed up and looking for hope. So use this time, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, on with the sermon, and let's prepare the way for it, just by briefly acknowledging the differences, though, between the disciples in the moment that Jesus speaks to them and us here now. For much of the dialogue, as I'm sure you noticed, 
surrounds a misunderstanding or, or at least a lack of understanding that simply doesn't apply to us now and yet which dominates the first half of the passage at least. For the disciples clearly have not yet grasped that Jesus is going to die and rise again. Not because he hasn't told them. I think we all know that. He has. But they just don't get it. And that's what all the, in a little while you won't see me and then you will see me, is all about. They don't know what he's referring to, even if to our post-resurrection eyes it is blindingly obvious. So we're not going to focus on that misunderstanding, which in any case, uh, as well as being irrelevant to us, was very temporary, as the next three days would make clear. Jesus, after all, was speaking the day before he would die. And instead, we're going to look beyond the grief of his arrest and death to that time when he has risen from the dead, ascended and sent his Holy Spirit to live in his followers, including you or I, that would make possible those even greater things that he promised his disciples would be done back in chapter 14, verse 12. So my focus is what this passage tells us, not about those next few days for the disciples, but what it tells us about the next few millennia, the post-Pentecost era in which God's plans for the world and Jesus' mission to the world would be fully fulfilled. And I want to structure it around two contrasts that capture for me what living with the virus is all about. First, joy in the context of difficulty. And secondly, power in the context of weakness, which is what Jesus' teaching on prayer is all about. So joy first, and I really do think this is something that we all need to hear. For joy is in short supply right now, isn't it? Many of us are weary and wary. Most of us are frustrated. And some of us have accumulated sadness, anger, and doubt along the way. It's not what we wanted, but it is where we find ourselves What light then does this passage have to shed? And the short answer to that is that Jesus will rise from the dead. That, of course, is what he's telling his disciples. And that's the defining moment of human history, not just for them as they look ahead, but for us as we look back. Now, I don't highlight that because I think we don't know it. Of course we do. But I do think we're in real danger, as Christians always are, of losing sight of just how wonderful and world-changing that was and that is. Yes, of course, for the disciples themselves, it, it had the relief and ecstasy that came from what for us would be the survival of a loved one from a life-threatening illness or accident. We can imagine how we would fear, how we would feel as they recover from something we thought they wouldn't recover from. And so the disciples' joy was personal as well as spiritual. And of course, it's slightly different for us. But the impact on us still can actually be just as profound. For joy is not beyond us just because we haven't met Jesus in the flesh. Just as it wasn't for Paul. After all, the apostle Paul never met him in the flesh. He had that vision and met him in that way just as we've met him in relationship and encounter ourselves and he was the one that did more to describe and celebrate christian joy than anyone else so the joy jesus is talking about is not just for the disciples 
It's for us. Joy is characteristic of the Christian life, except it doesn't automatically happen. It's something rather we have to draw out of ourselves by refocusing on what the gospel teaches us and those wonderful revelations it contains and allowing the Holy Spirit to take those truths and implant them and impart them into our hearts. We have our part to play and God has his. And that's how joy can come. Do you want some joy? I certainly do. We're meant to have it. Let's go for it. It's there. It's available. It may be a little elusive and more difficult to achieve than usual in this current moment, but it's available to us all if only we're willing to try and ask for it. And there are a number of ways that we can tap into it. I just want to go down the sharing a few truths and dwelling upon them root so that together we can have a go at doing what I hope and pray we'll do on our own as we seek to bring that joy into our lives on a day-by-day basis. And the reasons for joy that I'm going to share with you are truths that are eternal, not circumstances that are temporary. And I know that we've taught before at St. Paul's that joy is something that can be permanent because it's not based on circumstances beyond our control. It's based on truths that we can depend on, that we can dwell upon, that we can meditate and pray into, and which therefore can transform us, whether we're in prison, whether we're on our deathbed, as much as they can in far more promising and optimistic times. Okay, so the first truth that I want to share with you is this. Jesus is alive, which means there is hope. Hope of what? Well, of life beyond the grave. Clearly, that's a big part of it. Tell that to a dying person or even a person worried about dying or about someone else dying, and you'll see the impact that that has. But it's also hope for humanity. God has a plan for the world, and the resurrection confirmed it. This life and whatever mess we may be making of the world right now is not the end of the story. Ultimately, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we can be part of it, whatever difficulties or setbacks we currently face. The resurrection tells us there is hope. Hope for us as individuals and hope for us as a world. And actually, we're going to be thinking about that eternal future, that long-term future, a little bit later after this sermon and see just as how Jesus spoke the future into the present and transformed the disciples so that future hope can transform us. So that's hope. Second truth I want to share with you is Jesus is alive and that means there is forgiveness. Now separation from a loved one is bad enough. We all know what that's like. But separation from our creator for eternity is even worse. But with Jesus' death and resurrection, that barrier between our sinful selves and our perfect God is removed. Sin and evil has been defeated and love and forgiveness has triumphed. Reconciliation 
is the outcome. And it's possible for every one of us who turns back to him. If you don't yet feel reconciled with your God, well, you can be. All you've got to do is receive that gift. Trust in Jesus dying for you and rising from the dead. And you can be friends with your heavenly father forever. Which means there is relationship possible. Relationship, not just a distant relationship, but the most intimate one imaginable. If we want it. If we receive that gift. And that's the third reason for joy that I want to celebrate. It's an easy thing for a long-standing Christian to take for granted. But believe me, it's truly astonishing for everyone else. To have a friendship with your Heavenly Father is the most precious and wonderful thing. And it adds an extra dimension to life that nothing else can bring. Ask a new Christian, as I have done over the last week or two, I've been spending a bit of time with one. And you'll soon be reminded, this is life transforming. To go from separation from God into a daily relationship of walking with him, talking to him, listening to him, being guided by him. That is an incredible reason for joy. And here's a fourth, which is related again. Jesus rising from the dead brings purpose. For we all know what it feels like to be going through the motions, don't we? But with God involved in our lives, our lives need not be like that at all. For we're all part of a worldwide mission in which each individual believer has their place. And we all have potential. Potential that with God's spirit and us all working together can be fulfilled. Whether it's improving this world for the better or winning souls for the next. A bit like the disappointment of England's draw with Scotland. So many people's lives can be goalless. And for many of us, Even as Christians, that's what the pandemic has reduced us to. But God can lift us out of it, giving us the meaning, the purpose, the reason to live that everyone else craves and yet struggles to find. And it's time to reconnect with it as we reconnect to God, each other, and the community around. But it's not just the reasons for joy that I want to highlight today. It's also the perspective that this bigger picture brings on our troubles and our struggles as well. For in the light of all that I've shared, can we really say that much else truly matters? Now, of course, devastating illness, bereavement really does. Losing our jobs or other catastrophes that occur and may be occurring more often right now for more people. They're terrible. They're so hard to bear. And yet, actually, so many of the other things that we allow to get ourselves down, um, actually, in the big picture, don't really matter that much, do they? Certainly, the apostles didn't think so, for they gave up comfort, stability, and security for what Jesus had called them to. And actually, so often did our predecessors, Christians who, from the early church onwards, placed God's calling on their lives above everything else. And I was talking to Sophie uh, this week as we planned the service. Obviously, she's not uh, been able to uh, lead it, as it turned out. And we hope and pray she'll be better soon. But she was sharing that actually in previous pandemics, 
It was Christians who stood up and were counted. Obviously, in centuries past, it was they that cared for the sick. It was they that taught the children. But even in more recent times, it was they that understood that when crisis comes, when people are sick and dying, it's the church's job to go and meet with them, to hold their hand literally or metaphorically, and to share God's love and truth with those in that awful situation. That's what Christians have always done. I know it's what the early church did. I've read about it and that the impact that they had in, in pandemics that occurred then. And that surely is what God is calling us likewise to do. And yet we as a generation so used to safety, medical safety, protection, being looked after, we don't expect any difficulty really to come and it, it, it can surprise us and knock us off course. And let's be honest, for many of us, even as Christians, that's been true for us. But actually the truth is that previous generations understood is difficulties and setbacks and challenges and frankly sadness, grief, and real fear and danger will come just as it comes to the Christians even leaving aside the pandemic who face persecution and poverty today. It's not whether those things happen. It's how we respond to them that counts. And I think that's the challenge that God has for us right now. Now, of course, the form those challenges take varies. Persecution was clearly the main challenge for the disciples. For us, it's viral and it's shared with wider society. It's not coming from them persecuting us. And it's shared, of course, with the whole global community in which we live. But the parallels between Jesus preparing his disciples and what we need to hear is there all the same. For example, rarely in this country have the words of verse 32 from our passage seen more apposite. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. We've lived that, haven't we, in the last year or so. We didn't like it, but it wouldn't last for them and it won't last for us. Jesus said, in, the world, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So just as the disciples' confidence and courage to brave the dangers grew, so too must ours. They risked imprisonment and sword. We risk infection. But actually, without the bravery that they showed, well, the danger is the opportunity that we face will be lost. Because there is opportunity. Yes, we've probably got a third wave. Yes, people are very cautious and rightly so. And yet I think we all recognize that so many are craving love and human contact, community and hope. Everyone is looking for something to lift them. More open to God than perhaps they ever were. They just need someone to reach out to them. And that so easily could be us. So are you ready? Are you ready within reason, within the limits of what's sensible and appropriate? Willing to show that love 
willing to do business actually with God in your own recovery and healing, seeking that restoration and healing that you need. And 11th and 14th of July are the two dates that we've planned to help us as a church to do that, to facilitate that healing and recovery, that moving on. But are you also ready to join in with whatever God's Spirit is wanting to do in your community, your family, your friendships, your workplace, your church? And let's be honest, by way of perspective, previous generations have had it much worse. Far greater risk of life-threatening illness than we face even with coronavirus. I think we all know that. Without the benefits of medical science and the NHS, we now enjoy. Not to mention the real danger of poverty and war at times for so many. With far less wealth, far fewer comforts, in far less healthy environments at work or at home. Life was more precarious, less prosperous, and in many cases shorter as well. We all know that. You don't need to be a historian to know that. Even now, we've never had it so good, to quote Harold Macmillan, if you remember him saying that. Even today, at this most difficult moment in history, we have so much to be thankful for. So let's express that gratitude, yes, in thanking God, yes, in allowing it to give us joy and consolation, but also in seeking to share that gratitude in sharing God's love in his mission to the world. So we've covered that first contrast, joy in the context of difficulty, and that's most of what I wanted to share today. My final section is much briefer, and it's on the way that we do it, the power behind the mission that we are all called to join which is the incredible, awe-inspiring, never-ceasing power of prayer. And when I was planning this series back in, I think it it must have been um, probably January, um, I probably would have said that love and the Holy Spirit were the dominant themes, together with persecution as well. And of course they are, running through all of these four chapters from John that we've been looking at together. But now, three quarters of the way through the series, I can see that prayer was another theme. Not least in these words, which actually have appeared in uh, probably four different passages and sermons that we've had, and expressed in today's passage like this. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Astonishing words. Is Jesus lying? Is he exaggerating? he's not. Jesus doesn't lie. Jesus doesn't exaggerate. He's saying, actually, incredible things can be done, not even just by the disciples, but by each of us, if we rely on his help and if we pray. And what's more, not only is this a promise that it it can see things happen that are incredible, but actually he tells us in verse 24 that praying in that way will make our joy complete. So if Jesus repeats something like that so many times, we need to take notice and recognize that he wouldn't repeat it if we naturally did it. It needed to be said. And that actually its scope probably goes well beyond what we naturally assume. And I certainly think that's the case. So what is Jesus advocating here? Well, his concern surely is not just a form of words. It's not about finishing every prayer with in Jesus' name. A traditional and entirely appropriate ending to a prayer, though that might be. 
I don't think that's the point he's making. Rather, it's about authority, about knowing what authority has been given to Jesus, and also about agenda. Praying in his name is about praying for the things that Jesus and our Heavenly Father want to be fulfilled. And when we pray for those things, we align ourselves with God's heart, and that's when the power comes. We need to know the authority. We need to know the agenda that has been given to us. And if you want joy in your lives, if you want power in your lives, then align yourself with it. To put it in a nutshell, our prayers are too small because as many preachers and authors have put it before, our God is too small, which of course is not a reference to God himself, but rather our expectations of him. We simply fail to realize what God can do when we trust in him and when we fail to ask for it because we've lost sight of what God has called us and promised to do in us. And that calling is to make a difference, not just to be different in a good way to those around us, vital though that is, but to actually intentionally, proactively, prayerfully, boldly, lovingly seek to intervene in other people's lives for good, to assertively offer them love or guidance or help or witness or friendship, whether or not they have asked for it, but to do so graciously so that the consequences, should they reject it, which is pretty unlikely, are never severe, and prompted by prayer and backed up by prayer so that the spiritual harvest is reaped. People come to faith often not because they knock on the door or ring up their friend and say, please tell me the way to be saved. Great if that happens. But normally it's because that friend off their own back has chosen to share that good news. That's how we make a difference. We recognize our calling and we go out there and trust that for every person that may not receive that offer that we make to them, whether it's in love or words that might help them spiritually. Well, there'll be someone who will, perhaps more than we actually imagine. And that's what being a mission-focused church is all about, provocatively revealing God's love to the world, going beyond what people expect of us, surprising them in a wonderful way through the love and care and attention and concern that we show them. And that's what being a fruitful, spirit-filled, mission-centered Christian is all about as well. And that's what living with the virus for us as Christians must be about. It's saying, yes, we'll be cautious when we have to, but we're not going to lie low forever. We're not going to let go of our calling and our ambition to make a difference. And it's to say that the moment for boldly praying boldly asking for opportunities to serve, to witness and to disciple is already here, even in this moment, and certainly is to come in the not too distant future, if we boldly step out together as a church. So what am I calling us to do? Well, I say this a little hesitantly right now, perhaps more hesitantly than I would two or three weeks ago. But I do need to say to you that The government may well open up things further, we'll see, 
in just a few weeks' time. But whether they do or not, things are going to get better. The summer is going to help. The third wave will pass. Vaccinations will continue to kick in, especially among the young who have not been vaccinated and are the most likely to spread it. Opportunity is coming. We're already starting to plan things for the end of August and September. For example, we, uh, we know that children's work is starting next week and we need to put together a team, not just for the summer, but also uh, for the autumn. We've got the bare bones, but we haven't got everything we need. We need helpers for that. We need helpers for our youth work. We need lots of helpers if we run a holiday club and we're going to discern whether to do that this week. And then we want to start Oasis again in September. We're going to need lots of helpers for that. We want to see more and more people come back to church, especially when this wave passes. We need lots of people to make that happen. We need you all to play your part. Um, let's you know, not forget all the other roles, stewarding, welcoming, coffee and, and the upfront roles as well. There's lots to be done. There's lots of opportunities. And there were many people, let's be honest, to encourage to come back when they feel that they can. And in the meantime, to call them, to visit them, to contact them and remind them that we care about them, that they matter to God and that they matter to us. And given what I've said about prayer, can I also make a special appeal that we reconnect with corporate prayer together? One of the highlights, if I can call it that, of the pandemic was the fact that for quite a decent amount of time, actually our attendance at prayer meetings when we started meeting on Zoom really went up. And it was the most wonderful time of fellowship and really special. And we celebrate that. But we've probably gone off the boil just a little bit. And I call on us all to reconnect. If you look at revivals through history, and if you look at just uh, individual situations of growth, in churches, it's always prayer that's the precursor. And if we recognize that the right now that it's a little dicey with the virus, but the opportunity is coming very soon down the track, well, of course, the right thing to be doing now is praying. Praying together and praying alone. Praying that God would prepare the ground so that when the harvest comes and it's even starting to come, even now, we're all ready that the spiritual temperature is right, that the spiritual ground has been broken, that hearts are prepared, and the harvesters are there, ready to play their part. Let me bring you back to what Jesus was doing with the disciples in our passage. He was giving them a vision of the future, of how joy would follow grief. of how celebration would follow sadness. And what we're going to do now is listen to a song that actually does that same thing for us. And I want you to take the challenge that I've given and allow the words that are now going to be sung to us to remind you why this is all worthwhile. To remind you why you can stick in there to remind you that whilst there are troubles in this life, there is joy to come. There is harvest to come. 
and that one day we will be with Jesus forever. So the band are going to sing to us now. And then after that, I'm going to come back and just lead us in a prayer response in the light of that and all that we've heard. So shall we stand and let's allow the band to lead us once more in worship. <laughs>